All right, shout out everybody watching us online. Um, let me be, I guess, the third person today to say Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, we are extremely grateful for opportunities to connect with everybody. And I woke up this morning with a lot of thoughts in my head swirling around. And one of the things that comforted me is a scripture from Isaiah 55, where God tells Isaiah, he tells his people through the prophet Isaiah that his words would never return to him void. That God's words would always accomplish the purpose for, for which they were set out to accomplish. And I believe that right now, as we come around God's word, uh, celebrated, celebrating around the theme of Christmas, uh, his word is going to do something in all of us. So let me pray for us before we get started. Uh, God, our Father, I pray right now for Holy Spirit power to be able to comprehend what is the depth, the breadth, and how amazing is your love for all of us and the true meaning of Christmas. Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of my goals in the new year is, and I need you to hold me accountable for this, is to spend a lot less time on social media. So in warming up to that, I've been doing a lot of uh, this crossword puzzle on the New York Times and also a game called Spelling Bee. I don't know if you've played it, um, but Spelling Bee is basically this arrangement of letters that is basically on the screen. And in order to progress in the game Spelling Bee, you need to find something called the panogram. The panogram is a collection of all of the letters that make up one word. Now, my wife will tell you that sometimes I'll be laying in bed and just like staring at my phone for like 20 minutes trying to guess what the panogram is or trying to guess this collection of letters. And I keep on shuffling them around and eventually, I'll get it. Now, this word a couple of days ago was a word that you see on the screen, uh, all of these letters, and the panogram that day is brought. Now, before I uh, even said the, the word, a lot of times these, these disconnected letters um, are difficult to make out what they are intended to communicate. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Now, in a lot of ways, I feel like Jesus' birth in Scripture, uh, for me, growing up over the years as we celebrated Christmas, was kind of like that game of spelling bee. It was like this random assortment of things that are right in my face, but I was missing the true meaning of what all they intended to communicate. It reminds me of uh, the Christmas plays that we did as, as children in our church outside of Yonkers. Uh, you know, it's a group of seven-year-olds in their dad's bathrobes pretending to be the wise men. And there's all of these different stories and different things that happen in Scripture, but the biggest question ahead of us today is not necessarily how Jesus came. Was it three wise men or was it 28 wise men? But more importantly, what does that mean for us today? What is the meaning of Christmas? With all of the things going on around us today, what power can we derive from the account of Scripture, uh, Christmas in Scripture? Now, if you were to read through the Bible, starting in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, you will read a lot of details about the Christmas story that Jesus was born to his mother Mary, who had been engaged to Joseph. And it was discovered before they came together that Mary was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, he didn't want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord, uh, through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Christians all over the world in this next couple of weeks, the next couple of days and week, will be celebrating this story that God became flesh and lived among us. That God is not God who is distant, but he is God with us. He is Emmanuel. Now, I know we have a lot of people who are very smart and learned and have sometimes a lot of questions about this Christmas account. And in a lot of ways, we can get so caught up in the how everything happened that we miss out on the true meaning of what the story is intending to communicate to us. So I don't really want to spend a lot of time today talking about or defending the virgin birth of Jesus, but I will say this. It's a quote that I read on Twitter, so it's a little spicy. It kind of explains a little bit of where I want to take us today, uh, that I want to spend more time focusing on the meaning of Christmas and less about uh, how Jesus came. Here's a quote. It's a little spicy again. It wasn't me who wrote it. Um, It says, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. At the foundation of the way we understand the world, everybody, there are always things that are, we are incapable of fully explaining. So whether you're an atheist and you believe in the virgin birth of the universe, or you're a Christian and you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, we all have to choose our miracle. But that aside for today, I want us to be thinking about, well, what is the message of Christmas? The first piece of the message that I think is most profound for me right now in this moment is that God's power is best demonstrated through human weakness. God's power is best demonstrated through human weakness. Now, the most frail, innocent, and weak thing in existence in our human race are is, a, is an infant, is a newborn baby. And we see the story of Christmas, the account of Christmas, being that God entered the world in the weakest form possible. Not only that, but if you read in Matthew 2, it says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, this is like saying so much that, similar to the, um, the spelling bee game, this is like so much profound, um, so, much, so many profound things in, this, in these few verses that I, I want to make sure that we can see it, and hopefully we will never unsee it. Now, the question is, why did God put Jesus on the world stage at the same time as Herod to share a moment in history together? Now, one of the things you'll see in verse 3 is that when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now, one of the tasks of reading Scripture and approaching Scripture is not to think about it and say, well, what does this mean to me? But rather to say to yourself, what did this mean to the original audience that it was written to? Now, everybody would have understood and knew how crazy of a dude King Herod was. So a couple of things about King Herod. He was obsessively jealous and a ridiculously brutal person. In his 37 years of his title, King Herod was king of the Jews. He killed his brother-in-law, his father-in-law, 
three of his wives, and tens of thousands of people a year, in addition to two of his own sons. That's how paranoid he was that someone was going to try to take his throne away from him. Now, this king, who was obsessively jealous and had spies everywhere, it, scripture tells us that when he heard about Jesus being dubbed the king of the Jews, he was deeply disturbed. Now, it's really hard for us to understand this because we don't live, uh, we live in a democracy. Uh, hopefully, we live in a democracy. And in this time, this would have been like Stalin in the USSR, who would have killed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, having their eye out on one person. Now, not only was Herod ridiculously jealous and a brutal man, he was also very accomplished. He was one of the wealthiest men in the history of the world. He had a massive building program, which included theaters and ports and temples and markets and housing and palaces. Uh, King Herod had seven palaces. Caesar only had one. So ridiculously wealthy, um, ridiculously well-off and accomplished. Now, what are the chances that a little baby boy born to unwed parents would survive and fulfill everything that was prophesied about him? King Herod took it so far that it says in verse 18 of, uh, of Matthew 2 that King Herod ordered that every single baby below the age of two, baby boy below the age of two, be killed. So you have this bloodthirsty king, extremely connected, spies all over the place, who orders the death of every single child, and yet Jesus survives and is fulfilling all the prophecies which were said about him. Now, when I think about the question, why does God allow us to see Herod and Jesus on the stage? If we were to weigh the odds of what are the chances that Jesus would survive against this king, the probability says that Jesus would have died. Now, Jesus, I believe that this shows us that God's power, God's real, persevering, preserving, real power is demonstrated through human weakness. Now, that's not just true of Jesus in the manger. That is also true of us in our lives. And one of the messages that I'm taking home this Christmas is that God's power in us, God's power in you, God's power in you will be best demonstrated not in our strengths, but in our weakness when we have to depend and rely on God and God alone. The Apostle Paul says like this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, I was, I was talking to um, my boy Aswan, one of the pastors here on, on our staff this morning, and I was saying that, man, uh, I love my job. I'm so grateful to be a pastor at Renaissance, to be a part of this amazing community uh, but the one piece of my job, which I don't like at all, quite honestly, is when I have to make decisions that there's good on both sides of the coin, that it's not a crystal clear thing to do, and ultimately the buck stops with me. And to be perfectly honest, it, it leaves me feeling very weak, very uh, inadequate, very unable on my own to accomplish what I believe God wants us to accomplish, 
And I was so comforted this morning by the scripture in 2 Corinthians where Paul is saying, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that, listen to this, so that Christ's power may reside in me. Now, I want to dig into the grammar here a little bit. When Paul says so that, he is insinuating and stating a plain fact that when you are strong on your own, God cannot be strong in you. When you are sufficient in your own, God cannot be your sufficiency. God's power is best demonstrated through human weakness. When Jesus came uh, and fled the decree of, uh, and his parents fled the decree of Herod who ordered the death of, of every single child in that age, the probability of Jesus surviving was next to nothing. But he survived because God's power is best demonstrated through human weakness. God the Son was untouchable, not because his parents made the right decisions, but because God's will can never be thwarted. And God invites us, not in this season, to run away from our weaknesses. No. God invites us to embrace our limitations and our weaknesses and to turn to him. There's a scripture I've been reading all day yesterday in 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's telling them, Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be unaware of all of the afflictions that we faced in Asia. We were so overwhelmed to the point of death that we were so overwhelmed that at that point we felt like we were going to die. And Paul says this, but this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on God. Now, it's difficult to extrapolate and understand all that it means to live in this world in the middle of what might be another wave or a little puddle of COVID, I, we, who knows what that looks like. But I am fully aware and fully hopeful that in this next season, we allow God to be strong in us through our weakness, through our, through our not understanding the way forward, that we allow him to be God uh, in us and in our lives. So I think the story of Christmas, first and foremost, shows us what real power is like and God's power is best demonstrated through human weakness. Number two, I think the Christmas story is about a beautiful fact that God understands us. When you pray to God, God doesn't just listen to you. When you pray to God, God doesn't just tolerate your prayers. God understands your prayers. There's a scripture in Isaiah 9 and 6 where there's a prophecy about Jesus. And it says, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That first phrase there that Jesus will be called and named Wonderful Counselor is where I want us to be considering for this point right here. Now, who are the best counselors? Who are the best people that you are able to offer counsel to? People who are traveling a road that you yourselves have already been down and crossed over successfully to the other side. One of my jobs now is I help church, uh, train and coach church planters, people who want to start churches in, in New York City and other cities around the world. And one of the things that makes me a decent counselor in this job and proficient is that I myself have gone down that road. Now, when Scripture says that Jesus is our wonderful counselor, it means that since he came to earth and experienced not just the highs of humanity, but the lows of human depravity and everything in between. Jesus 
understands us. Jesus understands what it means to be betrayed by someone close to you. Jesus understands what it means to be disappointed in his friends. When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and asked his friends to pray for him, they fell asleep on him three times. Jesus understands all of the human emotion that we are dealing with. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus was at all points tempted and yet remained without sin. And as a result, he understands and he has empathy and he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Not just that, he understands our weaknesses, but Jesus, one thing that I've been really wrestling with the last number of years has been this concept of all of the injustices we see in life and in our country. And one of the challenges in the last couple of years has been me praying and thinking, God, you have not answered our prayers for justice, for growth. And if I'm being completely honest, there's many times when I am really discouraged in, in, in not seeing real progress or at least progress that I can see. I think there's two reasons that Scripture gives us some comfort from this, that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Jesus knows exactly what it means to be a part of an unjust system. There's a, a scholar, a legal scholar, that analyzed the trial of Jesus, and I won't nerd out all my lawyers. Um, you can go. I'll probably put a link somewhere. Uh, but there were all of these injustices that happened in Jesus' trial. One injustice, one big injustice, was that... Uh, the Sanhedrin, the, the people who were the judges in Jesus' trial, were also the ones testifying against him. The Sanhedrin was almost like the Supreme Court of the day, and it would be like the Supreme Court charging you with something and then arguing for the charges they discharged with you. It was extremely corrupt from beginning to end. Uh, when Pontius Pilate came in, there were not two or three witnesses. There was no corroboration. All of these unjust things happened that led to Jesus' unjust crucifixion. So if we are saying to ourselves, God, I hate injustice, he says, I understand. Now, where do we find ourselves in this moment? Where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves, for some people, in a place of real anxiety, of real anguish. You know what Jesus would tell us? I understand. There's a selection of scripture. One of the reasons I love the Bible is that the Bible includes stuff in it that if it wasn't true, it just wouldn't make sense to put it in there, right? There's some stuff that is like, if that didn't happen, it just is really weird to put in there. And one of those scenes in Scripture for, that, for me is when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus at this point is showing so much human weakness. He's asking his friends to pray for him. He is overwhelmed. Scripture says, he says, I am overwhelmed to the point of death He's so overwhelmed. The scripture tells us that Jesus starts to sweat blood. He is experiencing anguish in its fullest capacity. Now, as I think about my life right now and the things that overwhelm me, the things that bring me quite literally a lot of anguish, worries and concerns about loved ones, worries about coronavirus, the economy, the pandemic, and all of the things, safety on our streets, our schools, am I raising my kids right, all of the different things that can fill me with exhaustion and overwhelming this specific season, having to have conversations with your family and friends around a, dinner, around a deeply divided dinner table, if you are feeling overwhelmed by the status of your relationships or whatever that looks like, if you find yourself to be at a point 
where you say to yourself, I am overwhelmed. When you pray, Jesus might not respond with an immediate resolution to your prayers. However, we would do very well to never form our lips with an accusation that our God does not understand us. Because of the incarnation, he fully understands. And as a result, we can come to him with full confidence, full assurance, knowing that he hears us and our God understands us. So number one, God's power is best demonstrated through human weakness. In our weakness, that's the only thing we can offer to God that will allow him to be strong in us. Number two, God understands us in every single area that you might find yourself, both the highs and the lows. And number three, the Christmas story is a story that means God is for us and not against us. There's a scripture in Romans 8. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. And in the, in the scripture, the apostle Paul asks a question. He said, what shall we say to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The question that I think about sometimes is, well, is God actually for me? Is he actually for me with all of my inconsistencies, with all of my ignorance? Is God actually for me? Paul continues in Romans 8. He says, what shall we say about these things if God is for us? Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring a, an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is at the right hand of God and, and, and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, here's the truth about uh, Christmas. God showed up on our side to let us know that he was on our side. God showed up on our side to let us know that he is on our side. Now, this is difficult for us to actually internalize, no matter how many times we hear it, because we all have a frame of reference. And through this frame of reference, we fill in so many details and assumptions about what God is like. We have our pain from our past, things that have happened to us, things that have been done against us. We have how we have been formed from our family of origin in our childhood things that our mothers and fathers uh, have done to us, or things that we needed from our parents that we never got. And as a result, it makes it difficult for us to truly believe that God loves us. Uh, one of my friends, as uh, uh, a marriage counselor, he did some lessons for us in our uh, marriage retreat a number of years ago, and he told a story about how his father never once told him he loved him. And as an adult, how he longed to hear those words from his father, to just say he loved him, and to just say that he was proud of him. Now imagine how difficult it would be for you to understand and to internalize the deep and the depth of the love of God that calls us his children if your father never told you he loved you consistently. John 1, in 11 through 13, it says this, that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to those who did receive him, he gave them to be the right, he gave them the right to be the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Here's the thing, y'all. God showed up on our side to let us know that he is on our side. Despite the things that we've been taught, despite our fears and our insecurities, Christmas means to us that God is for us, not against us. Now, here's the beauty of Jesus. Years ago, thousands of years ago, I believe it was the ancient Greeks that were credited with building the first bridge. Since that day, humans have been building bridges that are aiming to connect two separated things. Spiritually and religiously, people have been doing this for centuries and millennia as well. People have been trying to build a bridge between them and God, that we sense a gap between where we are and where God is. And every religion says, if you want to get to God, you need to build this bridge of performance to dress a certain way, to do a certain thing, read these things, to go through a certain ritual if you want to get to God. But Christianity says that God is the one who came down and built the bridge to us. Jesus, when he came down, he didn't come down to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that everybody who puts their faith in him would have the right to become the children of God. Now, one of my hopes for myself this Christmas season is that I would be more aware every single day that God is for me and that God is not against me. I think that's the most clearly seen when Jesus endured all that life threw at him, including the cross, for our behalf. And he did that not because he was trying to get you back, but because he was trying to win us back to himself. The story of Christmas is a God who has come down with passion and fire in his eyes, passion for his children, and God is in search of all of us. And the cross is a message that screams out to us that he is for us. So number one, God's power is made perfect in human weakness. Number two, God understands us. And number three, Christmas means to us that God is for us. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, our Father, in all of the things that might give us fear or anxiety in these coming days, Lord, I pray that we would lean away from our own understanding and lean into you. That we would be people who would be like Paul, who would say, now I take pride in my weaknesses, because when I am weak, you are strong in me. Lord, I pray that in this Christmas story, we are reminded deeply and fully that you understand us, that we can come to you boldly and fully, and that you understand everything about us, our fears, our anxiety, and our anguish, our joys, and everything in between. And Lord, may we be comforted by your coming, which screams at us that you are for us. And Lord, may we worship you this Christmas. May you be big in our lives. And may your power and love and majesty drown out everything else. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.